I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. And I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And this is World Footprints. Dear, when you were growing up, did you ever hear the Green Book? Uh, No, actually, but in an era of segregation, the Green Book directed African-American travelers to safe havens as they traveled through inhospitable and outright dangerous places. And we'll explore the legacy of the Green Book with author Candace Taylor in her new book, Overground Railroad. The fact that black folks were unable to just go on vacation and stay at the same places like most other Americans. Um, there's a lot of shame involved with that, so a lot of people want to just dismiss it and say, oh, well, we've, we've grown beyond that. That we, you know, thank God that's over. And I think that's a mistake. Now, I spent some time in western New York, but not a lot in Rochester, but I know when people think of Rochester, images of an industrial and corporate powerhouse kind of come to mind. But when it comes to African Americans, Rochester has a significant historical and contemporary impact that just might surprise you as it did me. And indeed, Carvin Eisen, documentary film director of July 64, shares Rochester's surprising African American legacy from Frederick Douglass to Broadway's The Lion King. Garth Fagan, who comes to Rochester, uh, builds a company called Garth Fagan Dance, becomes the choreographer for Disney's The Lion King, an extraordinary piece of work. And I'm really looking forward to this show. Me too. So let's get started. This is World Footprints with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. I don't know about you, but the thought of being a black family in the time of segregation having to travel by car across America through sundown towns and knowing that there was no one to protect you is a frightening and daunting proposition. And very intimidating. And thankfully, the Green Book was there even after the civil rights laws were passed in the 1960s to provide African Americans a kind of North Star for guiding and planning safe travels in a hostile, openly racist part of America. And Candace Taylor came upon the Green Book while doing research on Route 66. You may know of the Green Book because of the recent film dealing with the topic, but her book, Overground Railroad, sheds new light on the dark chapter in American history. You've written a book about the Green Book called Overground Railroad. And for those who may not see the movie or know what the Green Book is, describe the Green Book for us. The Green Book was a travel guide that was published for black people during the Jim Crow era. It was published from 1936 to 1967. It was created by a man named Victor Green, who was a postal worker from Harlem. And it was a critical tool, uh, not for just people who were taking black people who were taking vacations, but also those who were fleeing racial terror in the South during the second wave of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. And, and so what inspired your book project, Overground Railroad? Well, I've been working on this project since 2013. So I was uh, commissioned to do a travel guide on Route 66 uh, for Moon. And in the process of researching uh, that subject, I was struck at how much nostalgia was associated with the brand of Route 66 and kind of going back to the good old days. And I'm a black woman who's been 
documenting different subcultures throughout the U.S. for about 20 years. And I noticed that 98% of all the books, really, we think maybe 100% mm-hmm. of all the books um, written about Route 66 were written by white males. And when I asked a simple question, like, well, what did the black folks do? Because once I really looked at these different counties along Route 66 and saw, you know, the Ozarks and other areas that were just very white, lots of sundown towns, for instance, half of the uh, counties along Route 66 were sundown towns, which were all white communities, and they were all white on purpose, and you could not be black and be in that uh, county after 6 p.m., so the question was, well, what did black people do if they were traveling Route 66, and how did they know where they could stay? And that's how I stumbled onto the Green Book by accident. Finding out that there was such a thing uh, it was kind of a light bulb moment where I looked up at the universe and said, oh, this is why I'm in this hell right now with <laughs> Route 66 project, because I was supposed to find this, and this is my real work. Um, and that ever since then, it, I've just, you know, kind of, gone you know now the project has just gone into so many different directions and there's you know it's really been an incredible blessing for me to do this work so I don't think I would have found it had I not had the Route 66 book Mm -hmm. so I guess that's how life works. One of the things that Ken Dacey does with the book is make it relevant to the times in which we find this country socially politically and economically. But getting there required a lot of work, getting up close and personal to the people and the places in the Green Book. One of those persons was Leah Chase, whom we had the good fortune to meet in New Orleans many, many years ago. And as Candace said, Leah Chase was one of her favorite interviewees. So Candace, how was this transformative journey for you? You know, it's been an interesting journey. I've traveled about for this project, uh, over 50,000 miles throughout the United States. And um, it's been uh, incredible because not only, I mean, I did get a fellowship at the Schomburg, which if any of your listeners want to see actual green books, um, if they type in NYPL, New York Public Library, and green book, they've digitized 24 editions of them. So having an, a uh, fellowship at the Schomburg was really helpful in New York City, and then I had a fellowship at Harvard University. So I did all the scholarly research up front, but then it was a field research of going out and actually going physically to these sites that really created a whole different, you know, level of exploration and understanding about not only the history of the Green Book, but also contextualizing that to the present day situation of how these communities have been shaped and formed um, and in some cases destroyed by different government policies. So it really was more of an exploration about black and social mobility and Mm -hmm. physical mobility, um, which again, I don't think I would have had that experience had I just been sitting in my office at Harvard. It would have been a very different project and a different book. So being out on the road, I did get a, a grant from the Library of Congress to interview uh, Green Book business owners who are still operating families, you know, who are still operating these businesses, you know, over a half century later, which was fascinating. Um, and a couple of highlights might be, you know, I was able to interview Leah Chase. She was 
Mm -hmm. uh, the head chef at Dookie Chase's restaurant in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed her twice, actually, but for the Library of Congress interview, I went back and I interviewed her a month before she passed, maybe within two months. She was 96, and it was um, incredible. She was very sharp and really inspiring and just a wonderful, wonderful human being. She was just one of the highlights of my life of meeting her and spending time with her. Um, and those videos and audio pieces, those interviews will are going to be archived at the Library of Congress. They should be up in the spring, but people like Leah Chase, also I interviewed um, Mr. Malden, Nelson Malden. He was uh, Martin Luther King's barber, Mm. Um, and he, he had this barber shop at the first floor on the first floor of the Benmore hotel, which was a green book site in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and it was at that, at the Benmore hotel where King strategized the Montgomery bus boycott. So he was on the front lines of seeing this history being made. Um, so that was an exciting Mm -hmm. encounter. And then there were others where it was just, you know, an everyday um, man who ran a tire business, um, who's just a local laborer who's been, you know, his father ran it when it was the Green Book site, and he's still running it. And those kind of, you know, human interest stories of just meeting folks um, and seeing how these communities, like I said, are being changed by by different forces. Um, so being in these places was really critical, I think, to the project. Sure. Now you, you, I've heard it said you think that there's a disconnect between our understanding of how close we are to our history. What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's an easy, um, I think it's easy to just reduce the Green Book as something that was a kind of historic time capsule. And People would say when they were first learning about it, they'd say, oh, thank God we don't need that anymore. You know, the fact that we had a green book, that the fact that black folks were unable to just go on vacation and stay at the same places like most other Americans, um, there's a lot of shame involved with that. So a lot of people want to just dismiss it and say, oh, well, we've, we've grown beyond that, that we, you know, thank God that's over. And I think that's a mistake because although, yes, the laws were changed and we have made progress, there are still so many cases where in terms of black social mobility, in terms of, like I said, what's happened to these communities, what I saw was the scars, the indelible scars of mass incarceration that are playing an incredibly important role, undeniable role that many people are ignoring in terms of black social mobility. So I think the Green Book is a great entryway into shining a spotlight on those patterns because we have not, they look different today, but they're essentially the same patterns. So would you say that there's a need today for a different kind of Green Book, um, maybe a Green Book that focuses more on economic development um, to guide or direct and recommend places for the African-American community uh, and or as a cultural or historical guide? I think, you know, and there's been a lot of mention about that, and I think there are some of those in the works. And I'm not, yeah, I think that's, I think it's a very first basic step 
to support and shine a light on Black-owned businesses, but I really don't think it goes far enough in terms of the severity of the situation. I mean, I think in some ways um, what's really more important is capital, real capital and equal capital for Black entrepreneurs and Black-owned businesses, and that's something we've never had. So as many, um, and I, that's uncovered in some of my interviews, with some of these green book business owners and how hard it was for them to just get basic, you know, capital from a bank that most white businesses have access to. So that's number one, there needs to be more capital and support for black owned businesses and black entrepreneurs so that they can actually have more businesses. When you look at the 1930s, there were about 70,000 black owned businesses. It was a thing because, it had, we were forced to have them because we couldn't go to other white-owned businesses. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a. It was a. But now that we can, there's just there's a lot fewer of them. Um, so I think that's number one. Number two is definitely having these communities um, it stop. You know, the the inequality of you know whether it's education or lead. Um, environmental racism. There's so many things, there's so many policies that either don't protect or actually hurt black communities. So we need to stop that madness Um, because it doesn't matter if you have a green, a modern day green book and you go to black businesses. Um, You know, I'm not saying that doesn't hurt and I'm encouraging folks to do that, but I think it just scratches the surface of, you know, avoiding the real issue in terms of uh, our government policies and making sure that things are really truly equal. You know, the long-standing issue about the present effects of past discrimination, which some say is still alive and well in America, is central to understanding this book. But there's a historical dimension that I know you pushed with, Candace, and I really want to help our listeners get a sense why that was important. Well, the stories behind the story are always important and informative. And I really wanted to see if there are places where we can visit today to experience the Green Book and some of the safe havens that were given to African Americans during the Jim Crow era. Within your book, Overground Railroad, are there... um and you've identified sites. Are there markers? Are there historical markers um, or uh, identification, um, geographic identification, where people can actually visit some of these places that you've mm-hmm. um, you've identified? Yeah, in the back of the book, there's a site tour guide okay. of just as it's not comprehensive, but there's the majority of the sites that are still standing today that you can actually go to. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of markers, I am working with uh, National Park Service. I got a grant to start um, nominating these sites for the National Register. And it's a very involved process. I'm working with six different state historic preservation offices right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to take a long time. I mean, the applications for these, um, for these nominations are very involved. And so for each, it's one building at a time. But I'm also in early talks with the National Trust about uh, at least writing a green book context for other green book businesses on their own Mm -hmm. to nominate themselves for this. So, you know, 
the actual demarcation is going to take a while, but at least in the book, at the end of the book, you can see them for yourself and you can go and visit. Where can people um, learn more? To, where can people find you on these, uh, the book tours that you're doing and the um, exhibition that you'll be doing with uh, Smithsonian Museums? Right. I, um, I'm the curator and content specialist for an exhibition with the Smithsonian uh, Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. So it's under the acronym SITES, and we are launching the exhibition. It's a 3,500-square-foot exhibit that will travel the U.S. for three years. It will launch in June of 2020 at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. Um, so there's that. And in terms of the book tour, um, you can go to my website, which is tailormadeculture.com, mm-hmm. and that's T-A-Y-L-O-R-M-A-D-E, culture. And if you go under the Green Book tab, or it may be Overground Railroad now. Yes, it's Overground Railroad. That tab. Okay, Mm -hmm. and then you'll see um, the book tour card, and that shows all the book tour locations and the dates that will be happening through March of – through actually, I think uh, now I have have a couple more up through the end of March. But at least through March 10th, they'll have – uh, listings there. And I can be reached on Twitter um, at Candace Taylor um, and the same with uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, and if you want to follow the project, if you sign the guest book at the bottom of my page on the web page, um, I will put you on my updates list and I send out maybe four or five a year giving you information about the project. To explore the Overground Railroad and learn more about Candace Taylor's research and works, visit tailormadeculture.com or click on the link on the show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper, explore and keep meaningful conversations going by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. Rochester, New York, has had a significant role in the development of America. Famed corporations such as Kodak and Xerox made Rochester the city of millionaires. But the city's African-American history, from the life and times of Frederick Douglass to the summer of 1964, have defined Rochester as much as the opening of the Erie Canal. Our next guest, journalism professor, filmmaker, and Rochester historian, Carvin Eisen, puts it all into context and makes a convincing case to visit Rochester to understand it all. Carvin, when we think about Rochester, New York, very few people know of its significance uh, to African-American history beyond that of Douglas Douglas and his time there um, and perhaps its role in the Underground Railroad. Why do you think we know so little about Rochester's role in African-American history? Well, that's a great question. And I think the answer is really very simple. 
because as a nation and as a culture, we know so very little about African-American history, period. So a subset of that history, which would include Rochester and the life and times of Frederick Douglass, would be a clear indication of that. But the history is rich, the history is profound, and uh, the history is all around us. Frederick Douglass spent a great deal of his most productive years, about 27 of them, in Rochester, New York, where he did many extraordinary things. He did some of his most prolific writing. Uh, He launched the North Star newspaper, and um, he was active in uh, abolitionist uh, suffrage and, um, uh, and the Underground Railroad. So his contribution is significant. And we in Rochester for the 200th anniversary, which was uh, 2018, February 14, 2018, we did an exceptional project which uh, reflected his life, not only in Rochester, but the quality of his life in general. Uh, Most people don't know that Frederick Douglass was the first African-American in the history of this nation to have his lifetime achievements memorialized in the form of a monument. And there is a monument here by a sculptor named Sidney Edwards uh, that was dedicated in 1899. And it stands here in Rochester today. And we're planning on a big dedication uh, in June, June 9th of this year, which we hope uh, to have uh, President Obama and people of that level uh, to come here. But what we did for the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial, is we um, commissioned an artist by the name of Olivia Kim to produce 15 uh, monuments based on that Stanley Edwards monument. And we placed them all over the city of Rochester where uh, in locations where his life was significant such as um, uh, Rochester's War Memorial, uh, uh, downtown Rochester, and Kelsey's Landing, which was significant to the Underground Railroad, and many other places, the uh, cemetery, Mount Hope Cemetery, where he is interred, and many other locations. And it has just been remarkable. People should come to Rochester to see that. They're there on the streets right now, and we're hoping that they can stay there for a long, long time. So that was significant. And we're really, really excited about the response that we got. You can go to DouglasTours.com and you can find out all about it. You can read about it or you can uh, uh, listen to it because they're also recorded. There's so much history in every location. And there's one location in particular on Tracy Street, which was to memorialize the Tracy, uh, the Seward uh, Academy, where his daughter, where Douglas's daughter, Rosetta, was a student. And during her time there, she was segregated from the uh, rest of the student population. It's a very fine school, uh, particularly in the areas of math and science. And the white families didn't want her. There was one family in particular that didn't want her uh, to be part of that community. So 
No one wrote righteous indignation better than Frederick Douglass. When people often speak of Rochester, they know it as an industrial city, perhaps more so in its past, but a corporate city with the likes of Kodak and Xerox, Bausch and & Lohm, and more recently, companies like Wegmans and Paychex, which, which are familiar national companies. But you like to point to two other events, the Erie Canal and July 1964, uh, the rebellion and riots that took place in, in Rochester. Help us appreciate the impact of these events on Rochester's history and also the broader American story. Okay, that's a great question and something to seriously consider because historians say that Rochester was Frederick Douglass's town long before it's George Eastman's town, all right? Fathom that. George Eastman was uh, an incredible uh, developer, entrepreneur, businessman, inventor, etc., and created, after Frederick Douglass's death, created an economy in Rochester that was significant. Uh, the whole Kodak uh, camera film uh, empire grew out of George Eastman's work. So uh, this was a significant undertaking after the turn of the century uh, from the 18th to the 19th century, or actually, excuse me, from the 19th to the 20th century, uh, Rochester moves away from its social justice roots into a more uh, industrial economic development. And some people say that uh, Rochester, there were two significant events in the history of Rochester that affected more than any other. One was the opening of the Erie Canal, and the second was the so-called uh, riot or rebellion of 1964. And not much is known about that. When people think about uh, the, the tumultuous time in American history during the 60s when uh, there was social unrest in many American cities, Rochester was the first city in the country where the National Guard was called out above the Mason-Dixon line to quell a social disturbance. So Rochester has significant history. And that, that so-called riot impacted this city to this very moment. The greater point I want to make is that that episode, that, that event did scar Rochester, but it wasn't only because of the riot. It happened at the same time that the government was creating uh, opportunities for veterans who were coming back from World War II to build a suburban community. So you had this incredible boom in, in roads and uh, highway development and uh, cheap loans for soldiers to move into suburban neighborhoods. So that happened almost simultaneously with the riot and it caused an exodus from the city. Uh, and that, that, uh, the results of that are still in, in play today. You directed the film July 64 and one of the, which I highly recommend, of folks see. That film mentioned that there were all of these corporations with with great jobs, but for those newly 
uh, arrived African Americans in the 50s and 60s, those jobs weren't accessible to them. No, you're absolutely right. It's complicated because imagine the 300% population increase was coming from agricultural areas, coming from the South, places like Sanford, Florida, where people had migrant jobs, picking fruit, uh, planting uh, uh, cotton or picking cotton, uh, planting uh, uh, the food and harvesting the food that feeds this nation to this day. So here you have Rochester, and many people don't know this, Rochester was the Silicon Valley of its time. There were more millionaires in Monroe County per capita than any other place in the United States. So it was a wealthy town. And you had all of these uh, extraordinary corporations and a quality of life that was very, very, very high if you were on the inside. Rochester has been the center of music theater and dance, and, and I'm a huge arts advocate, and I know how much arts revitalize revitalizes communities. It's doing it in my hometown of Detroit. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there are some significant figures who help shape American culture, uh, who have Rochester ties back in the day. And, and I'm going to ask you to talk about those individuals and also how the arts are uh, integrated in uh, Rochester, in the narrative, uh, today's narrative in the city. Well, that's a great point to make because uh, a Detroit product from Wayne State. My alma mater. Oh, okay. It happens to be Gar Garth Fagan, who comes to Rochester, uh, builds a company called Garth Fagan Dance, becomes the choreographer for Disney's The Lion King, an extraordinary piece of work. Garth is a artist who is globally recognized, has a very distinctive uh, style of choreography and, and movement vocabulary. And I am proud to say that Garth Fagan is a uh, contributing member of this community, particularly in the arts. And just fate would have it that we are celebrating this year and next year his company's 50th anniversary and that is something to say for a modern dance company outside of new york city so we are planning this is another reason to come to rochester an <laughs> extraordinary an extraordinary tribute to garth fagan by bringing together rochester's uh, uh gift to the world photonics optics image creation and projection and we're going to create this exciting uh, immersion uh, technology where we put people inside of a dance of Garth's work. We're going to project on uh, on viaducts and and um, uh, various uh, uh, physical structures, uh, moving dance images and do texture mapping on the water on the Genesee River and uh, paint murals on many city walls, which invigorates the. Uh, our arts community. So we're just really very excited about the fact that in spite of everything, these times, these challenging financial times, we're able to have so many uh, artists and so, mu so much uh, diversity within our community, despite uh, the challenges that we have in the country right now. 
And I don't know about you guys or your audience, but this is what we need now more than ever. The arts heal. Um, and when, when will this uh, event take place with Garth Fagan? Well, the, um, the celebration is, it has already begun okay. and we're working on the, the things that I just spoke about, the immersion project and the, the uh, monuments or not monuments, but mural project. That's all planned for, uh, to kick off in about one year, mm-hmm. assuming we can get everything in place, but that's what we're working on. And everyone is so excited because the arts remind us that we're human. And the arts uh, bring out the best in people. Music brings out the best in people. And right now, uh, you know, we could, if you called me about a different subject, I could talk endlessly about where our culture is right now. But we'll save that for another day. <laughs> and yes, and unfortunately, we'll have to save all of the, uh, the great places to see and, and experience and the great restaurants. And I know Rochester has for another day, too. But I, I know there, there are many, many reasons, Carvin. Oh, there are many. There are many. The George Eastman International... George Eastman House and International Museum of Photography, the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, one of the finest orchestras in the country, the Strong Museum for Play, the Rochester Museum and Science Center, the Strassenburg Planetarium, and I am just scratching the surface in terms of what we have here, uh, the amenities, the cultural amenities that we have that corporations and people look for when they move to a community. So we have, uh, we have a lot to offer about that. I am very proud. To learn more about Rochester and Frederick Douglass, go to douglastours.com or follow this link on the show page at worldfootprints.com. Babe, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the show we did today is how deep we went into the history and how much our guest helped uncover the story behind the story. And I frankly learned a lot, having never visited Rochester, and now I really want to. And certainly, you know, we've traveled along Route 66, but I want to go along that highway again and find the places that offered haven, a safe haven to people of color. And those places are still there. Uh, Some of the places that uh, are featured in the Green Book that we can still visit to this day. But interestingly enough, a lot of them that are still around are in Southern California in the Los Angeles area, which might surprise people. That surprises me. Yeah. So Rochester, New York, Very interesting place because of the industrial fortunes that were built there and just its importance in helping to shape pretty much the western frontier of America as the Erie Canal opened up the Great Lakes to commerce and connected the east and west. But we really didn't know too much, at least I didn't, about Rochester's African-American community. I knew about Frederick Douglass. Not so much about his time there, but it was really interesting to see how the city has gone about honoring and embracing him. Mm -hmm. And of all places, a city in upstate New York that was 
front and center at some of the great social tumult of the 1960s. So as we close, we'd like to leave you with the words of abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who we featured prominently in our Rochester, New York segment. We have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and the future. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Pandora, Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Public Radio Exchange, and many more. Connect with the world with a deeper understanding through powerful stories. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and compelling articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter and receive a free gift. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast and website are those of the guests and authors and are not necessarily endorsed by World Footprints LLC.